good. All right. Hey, great to see you. Uh, welcome to Bridgeway. First time I've seen you all from this angle. You all look great, and uh, it's wonderful to see you. Was last week here in the new building not just incredible? Was that just an amazing, amazing weekend? Such a Gosh, hard to put it into words. I know just the culmination of, of so much. And it was, such, it was just such our pleasure to be able to welcome you in here. And it's only going to get better as uh, we, get, uh, we get settled in here to our new, uh, new place. Just wanted to highlight a couple of things from last weekend. Uh, first of all, some of our volunteer teams were just amazing last weekend. Our greeters, our campus guides, our parking teams, our, our tech volunteers, all of them, they were just phenomenal. And what you need to know is they didn't just show up here last weekend, all of a sudden knowing where everything was and knowing everything. Uh, they, I mean, they came to meetings in the evenings to come and walk the campus. They studied maps like playbooks, you know, so they could be all ready to show you all where to go. So they worked really hard to make sure we were ready to welcome you last weekend. And I think they did a phenomenal job. So can we just show our appreciation for them? Just incredible, incredible work that we're very, very thankful for. A uh, couple other things to tell you about. You may have noticed as you came in uh, on our south entrance out by the flagpole, our friends from the Good Sip Coffee and Tea are there. Eventually we'll move coffee inside, but we're not quite ready to do that yet. So for now, they're out there. Uh, regular coffee, regular and decaf is free. Uh, and if you want a, I believe the technical term for it is a foo-foo drink, uh, those are available for purchase. So so go and see them uh, out there. They'd love to love to take care of you and your caffeine-related needs. And then uh, one last thing to tell you about. We had some folks let us know last weekend that the American flag we had on our flagpole was was tattered, was not in good shape. And that's and that's not a good thing. And we want, want you to know that somebody actually donated a brand new American flag to us and it's up there and it's it's beautiful. So thank you for that. Thank you for that donation. We're grateful for that. Now, uh, if you're new or visiting with us at Bridgeway, we're calling this this year the year of identity. So what we're doing uh, in our teaching times during the course of this year is we're spending the first 10 or 15 minutes talking about who we are as a church, talking about our corporate identity. And then from there, we're moving on into our Bible lesson, talking through uh, just our, our Bible passage for the day. So, so I want to start our, our kind of culture forming who we are as a people part of our teaching today with a statement that is very short. But, but comes from the absolute core of my being. It represents one of my strongest convictions, and it's this. The, the safest place in the world to ask absolutely any question, wrestle with absolutely any doubt, discuss absolutely any issue, or admit absolutely any shortcoming, absolutely has to be the church. Absolutely has to be the church. Now, if you're anything like me, your reaction to that might be one of two things. One, you might just laugh. Like, huh, while we're at it, I'd like 12 weeks of paid vacation, children who go to bed on time without complaining, and I'd like to be able to fly. Like, let's just, you know, let's just open it up to whatever we, whatever we want. You may be saying, Brian, you realize you're talking about church, right? That's not exactly the reputation church has in our society. Or you might even be saying, Brian, that is not the experience that I've had in my life. And I just want to tell you that if, if you're sitting here today carrying the scars from unsafe church experiences in your past, I just want you to know I am one of you. I have those scars myself. It's part of why I'm so passionate about this issue. So maybe, maybe it, maybe it causes you to laugh. I and mean, that's just not, that's just not how it is. But maybe also it causes you to long. 
Maybe you hear a statement like that and you think, what if it were true? What if it were true for believers, non-believers alike, those that, are, those that are all sold out for Jesus and those that want nothing to do with church, they just knew that churches were safe places. They just knew that whatever you're going through, whatever your issues are, whatever your beliefs are, you can go to a church and know that it's a safe place for you. Because I know that I speak for our other pastors and leaders when I say that we want Bridgeway to be that sort of a place. Because see, two of our core values here at Bridgeway are knowing God and loving generously. And we define knowing God as developing an intimate, accurate, growing relationship with God. We want to know God as he truly is. And we want to grow in that knowledge so we can live out who, who God calls us to be. And, and we want to love generously. We define that by saying we want to be joyfully demonstrating God's abundant love. And if we're going to be people that know God, and this is going to be a community where there's openness to knowing God, and if we're going to be people who love generously, who joyfully show the love that God has shown us, and we show that love to others, this has to be a safe place. This has to be an authentic place. This, this has to be the sort of place where people know that they can come and not have it all together, and that's okay. We say that our mission statement is equipping one another to bring the wholeness of Jesus to a broken world. I love that mission statement. I have it written on a whiteboard in my office. Now we're in a temporary office and my whiteboard's not installed correctly, so it's sideways. So I have to turn this way to read it. But I even, I do that and it gets me excited to come to work every day. I read it and I'm just like, yes, this is what we're about. I love that mission. And it's right there in the mission statement where we just, we just acknowledge the fact that our world is broken. Some of that brokenness is obvious. Just, just turn on the news. It hardly even needs to be said. But some of that brokenness is less obvious. The, the brokenness that you and I walk in here with today. Brokenness from past hurts. Bro brokenness from relational failures. Brokenness from things that have just not gone the way that we wanted to. Brokenness from the pain of regret. All of the stuff that we stuff underneath our smiles. See, some of that brokenness is easy to see. Others of it is hidden. But, but nevertheless, it's there. A few years ago from not this stage, but the stage in our old place, during a teaching, I talked about one of my favorite passages in Scripture out of Matthew chapter 9. It's one of my favorite stories, and it's only two verses long. And, it, and it's a story where Jesus calls a Roman tax collector named Matthew to be his disciple. And I don't know about for you, if you think about what is the most shameful profession in the world, or, or if you think, if you're a parent, what would be the profession that if your child came to you and said, Mom, Dad, I think I want to be a bleh, whatever that means, what would the, what, how would they fill in that blank in a way that would most horrify you? For a Jewish family, the answer to that was Roman tax collector. And Matthew, who was raised Jewish, had become a Roman tax collector. He had rejected everything he'd been taught. He'd, been, he'd rejected the values of his family. He'd rejected the values of his faith. He'd completely turned away from it and had gone and become a Roman tax collector. When Matthew got together with his family, if they'd even let him in the door, nobody asked Matthew how things were going at work. Okay? That was a source of great shame for them. And it was evidence that Matthew was as big of a failure as you could possibly be. And then one day, Matthew chapter 9, Matthew is checked into work, he's sitting at the tax booth, he's just doing his thing, collecting his taxes, all of a sudden, Jesus comes along, and here's what happens, it says this, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, 
and he rose and followed him. That's it. Next verse, they talk about something else. Jesus sees Matthew. Uh, Matthew says, uh, or sorry, Jesus says, Matthew, you're with me. And, and Matthew gets up and follows. See, don't, don't miss this. Jesus' first move towards Matthew, who is as broken as you could get, whose values were as opposite of his as you could possibly imagine, his first move towards Matthew was love and acceptance before he had cleaned himself up. And he, he, does, he, doesn't, he doesn't go to Matthew and say, you know, Matthew, shame on you for rejecting all of the stuff that you know. Shame on you for not knowing better. Shame on you for being a tax collector. But if you ever want to walk away from that, you can come be with me. No. He just says, Matthew, come on. Come, follow me. His first move towards him is love and acceptance. And, and what happens? His life was changed forever. He got up and he followed him. He never went back to the tax booth. And, and I love that story so much. I, I love that story so much. That's why I named my oldest son Matthew. Is because I think about what I want to teach my kids about God. And I, I wasn't raised in a Christian home. I don't have a clue how to raise kids to follow Jesus. I am, I am learning on the job, okay? But I think about what I want to teach my kids about God. And I think about just the challenges of being a pastor's kid and all that other stuff. What I want to teach my kids about God, first and foremost, is whatever choices they make, And I'm going to do everything I can to show them the beauty of following Jesus. Whatever choices they make, whether they accept it or reject it, whatever they do, they can know that they will always have from their earthly father and their heavenly father a first move of love and acceptance. A first move of love and acceptance, even in their brokenness, even in whatever choices they've made. Did Matthew have to change some things in his life? Of course he did. Did he and Jesus have some hard conversations eventually about, hey, listen, Matthew, if you're going to follow me, and I'm, I'm pointing you to something that's so beautiful, and if you're going to live into that, you've got to leave some stuff behind. Those conversations aren't recorded in Scripture, but it certainly wouldn't surprise me if they did. But Jesus' first move towards him was love and acceptance. I had someone come up to me a while ago, and they were, they were pretty broken up, and, and they said, Brian, my son just told me he's gay. What should I do? And I could tell by the look on their face that they sort of expected me to freak out. Oh, no. And I don't mean to make light of it, but, but this, is what I said, this is what I said to her. I said, if you haven't done this already, go give him a big hug and tell him that you love him no matter what. And that he is an accepted part of your family and that what he just said to you doesn't change that at all. I've had people come up to me, right, amen, I mean, come on. I've had people come up to me, the same thing, same but Brian, my kids just told me they're an atheist, what should I do? I said, same thing. Give him a hug and tell him you love him. Let's just, let's start there. Because come on, think about it. Where, th- people, whether young, old, whatever, people that are struggling with those sorts of issues, people that are struggling with questions of faith, sincere people who are just like, I just don't get how this all fits together. People that are struggling with their sexuality, people that are struggling with their values, people that are struggling to make sense out of this life, where else do we want them to go? And if the church isn't a safe place, to ask those questions, knowing you're not going to be judged, you're going to be loved, and we're going to help you through it, and we want to point you to Jesus, and we're going to love you no matter what. Come on. I mean, if we're not doing that, what are we doing? It's got to be a safe place. And again, is there, is there a, a place for hard conversations? Yes, absolutely. But only once you've established yourself as a person of love and acceptance. 
I've had plenty of hard conversations with, with Christ followers who are walking away from God, who are, who are living in a way that is contrary to the values of Jesus. And man, I have, I have, for, with people that I love and people that know that I love them and accept them, I've brought the hammer down and I've had some hard conversations and I can give you references if you want. I've had those conversations and there's a place for them. But only once it's been established that no matter how this conversation goes, I love you, you're my brother, you're my sister, and I want what's best for you. Only once that has been established. We've got to be safe people. So, so I want to ask you, I, I've talked about this corporately, I want to ask you about this individually for your own life, and then we'll, we'll move into Ecclesiastes. I want to ask you, do you conduct yourself in a way where people who don't share your values believe you're a safe person? If a, if a person of, of Muslim faith or Hindu faith or Sikh faith or no faith hung around you for a week, saw the things that you said to others, saw the things you post online, just saw the way you lived your life, what would they think? Would they believe that you love and accept them? Would they feel like you'd, they'd be welcome at our church? Would they be more or less open to Jesus by being around you? What, what, what about a person from the LGBT community? What would they say? What about, what about a person who does not share your political views? Do, do you express your views? And there's nothing wrong with being passionate. I'm passionate about issues too. Do you express your views in a way that makes it clear to those who don't share your views that you love them, you accept them, and you're a safe person for them? If you're not, your message is not a Christian message. You're alienating people from Jesus. I don't care about the issue. It's not worth it. It's just not worth it. Do you express your views in a way that makes you show that you love those who disagree? What about people, who, 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 what about a person who isn't sure what they believe? Would their questions be validated or shamed? What about a person who just looks different from you? We, we have to be safe people. This has to be a safe place. And just imagine a world if it was known that Bridgeway Christian Church was a safe place. No matter what you're going through, no matter where, what, what, what you believe, no matter where you are on the political spectrum, no matter if you, your views about this and that, you're welcome here. And we want to point you towards Jesus. So I'm going to say it again. I want to read that statement again. And I want to, I'm going to say amen afterwards. And if you agree, I want to invite you to, to talk back to me here. So, so here we go. Uh, the safest place in the world to ask absolutely any question, wrestle with absolutely any doubt, discuss absolutely any issue, or admit absolutely any shortcoming absolutely has to be the church. Amen? Amen. amen. All right. With that... I'd like to invite you to grab the handout sheet you received when you walked in the door. And if you've got a Bible or a Bible-equipped device, I want to invite you to open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. It's on page 555 in the ESV Bibles. I don't know that we have them under the seats just yet, but if they are out there, that's where you find it. Uh, and just a quick thought as I direct you to the fill-in-the-blank. I find it kind of fascinating that many of the things we value as a society are actually not valued that much by the people that have them. I'll give you just some very generic examples. I think about fame. You know, everyone wants to be famous. We want our YouTube video of us and our cat to go viral. We want to, you know, be on the reality show. We want to be famous. We want people to notice us. We want to this and that and the other thing. We want to be famous. It's so exciting. But then it's interesting, when you hear people who are famous, who's, who've achieved, achieved an extraordinary amount of notoriety, talk about what it's like to be famous, and it just doesn't sound that exciting. It's like, we think, man, to be famous would be awesome. And it's like, you listen to them and they say, you know what's really awesome? Being able to go to the grocery store and not being approached by 47 fans slash stalkers. Like, that's really awesome. To buy a loaf of bread in peace, that's pretty cool. We, we value fame, but people that have it don't, don't think it's that 
great. Or even wealth. I mean, we value wealth and being rich, or we certainly spend a lot of our time chasing down wealth. And then there are obviously some practical benefits to having money around, and it's not a bad thing to have money around. But it's interesting, too, when you hear people that have achieved incredible wealth, what they talk about or how they mention it. And here's the thing. I've never heard somebody nearing the end of their life say, you know what the secret to a happy life is? The secret to my happiness has been gobs and gobs of money. I'm so happy because I'm dying with all of this money and possessions. This is awesome. Nobody says that, right? If anything, I've heard you know, famous people talk all the time about how actually having lots of money is really stressful for them. And some of us are thinking, hey, I will gladly take on that stress if you want to send your money my way. But, but it's interesting. They, they, they talk about it like it's stressful. And it seems like those who are most content with their wealth are those that are trying to give it away and figure out, man, who can I, who, how can I use my wealth for the benefit of others? The fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this. That true wealth isn't measured in dollars. Tr- true wealth isn't measured in dollars. And on the flip side of that, poverty is not a financial issue. Poverty is not a financial, financial issue. In fact, if you're, if you're taking notes, you might want to write, write this down. Poverty is the absence of peace. Poverty is the absence of peace. I love the word for peace in the Bible. You know this if you're a church person. It's the Hebrew word shalom, which means completeness or wholeness. It's not simply the absence of conflict. Poverty is the absence of Shalom. It's the absence of peace. I've, I've shared before in our services that the worst poverty I've ever seen was in Beverly Hills, California. With a family I worked for for three years, they are still to this day the wealthiest people in terms of dollars I've ever known. And they are to this day the most miserable people I've ever known. And it's been 10 years since I've worked for them. And still, when I think of them, I just, it's just like it causes a visceral reaction in me. I'm just, Gugh! not trying to judge them and say they're bad people, but just say, man, I looked at how miserable they were, and I, just, I do not want that for my life. It's the worst poverty I've ever seen. Tr- true wealth is not measured in dollars, and poverty is the absence of peace. So with that, let's start reading in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 8. It says this, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. What's he saying? He's saying, if you see corruption around you amongst powerful people, don't be surprised. Because this is what tends to happen. In general, those who get into positions of power forget what it's like to not be in power. So they care only about themselves and others in power. There's the official who has a higher official over him and a higher official over him. And all they're doing is caring about themselves and they forget about common people. And this, this happens in the world today. You, you rise to a position of power and you forget what it's like to struggle. You, you get a great job so we forget what it's like to be unemployed so we don't have compassion on those who are unemployed. We, 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 we get into certain places, whether it's socially or in business or at, or at work or whatever, so we forget what it's like to have the door slammed in our face. We have lots of influence so we forget what it's like to have nobody pay attention to us and nobody care what we say. In other words, the tendency of, of if we achieve any sort of power is that we end up looking out for ourselves. And the writer of Ecclesiastes says, don't be surprised if you see corruption because that's just what happens. 
And if we look at the way of Jesus, if we look at the the lifestyle the Bible points us to, it's the opposite of that. Jesus, Philippians 2 says, humbled himself and made himself nothing. Jesus, the ultimate high official, did not use his power only for himself, but used his power for the sake of ordinary people like you and me. I think about Romans chapter 12, which tells us, do not be haughty or arrogant, which It's hard not to feel arrogant using a word like haughty. It's like, who says that? But anyways, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. If you're in a position of power, don't be the sort of person who cares only about those in other positions of power. Whatever that looks like. Be the sort of person who uses your power for the benefit of those without it, who uses your influence for the benefit of those without it. And I want to suggest to you that there is a richness in that sort of living that goes beyond anything you could get from just looking out for yourself and people like you. The re- you might not make as much money, that's true, but the relationships you build, the people you help, the satisfaction you get knowing that you're walking in the way of Jesus is worth far more. I pretty much never watch late night TV except for Sports Center or a game that I've taped, but like months and months ago, I was watching Stephen Colbert and he was interviewing Kevin Spacey. And I've always sort of been fascinated by Kevin Spacey. I think he's a brilliant actor and just, just an interesting dude. And they were talking about how Kevin Spacey was starting a program for aspiring actors. And, and I love the way that he put it. And as far as I know, Kevin Spacey does not, he's not a Christian, doesn't have any spiritual beliefs or whatever. And I love the way he put it. He said this. He says, I believe that those of us who have reached the top floor have an obligation to send the elevator back down. I thought that's a great illustration, a great picture. So, so for all of us, wherever you are in life, especially if you're in this stage where you've reached the top floor or maybe even the middle floor, how can you send the elevator back down? down. I believe that's the way of Jesus. <clears throat> verse 10. Now, now, now get this. This is, this is the verse we're going to key in on the most today. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity, meaninglessness. Why Why is loving money so dangerous? We say true wealth is not measured in dollars. Why is loving dollars so dangerous? It's very simple. It's because it doesn't work. It's because it doesn't work. The writer of Ecclesiastes says, if you make your life about accumulating more money, you will be miserable. And you can take that to the bank, no pun intended. If you make your life about making money, you will be miserable miserable. It will not satisfy you. And I'll tell you something that's absolutely staggering to me as I look at my own life. As I look at my adult life, my wife and I, we've been married for almost nine years. And and over the course of those nine years, as we finished graduate school and started our careers and this and that and the other, any time we've experienced an increase in income, whether it's from a new job or new income stream or a raise or promotion or whatever, big or small, any time we've we've received an increase in income, here's what happens. That increase in income seems awesome for about two weeks for about two weeks it's like wow this is incredible we can think about ways what we want to do with it where we want to spend it you know this and that saving giving whatever all this other stuff this is so exciting it's like a whole new world has been open to us then in two weeks something something crazy happens all of a sudden that new level of income is transformed into the absolute minimum amount of money any human could ever be expected to survive on And oh man, things are tight. What are we going to do? If only we had a little bit more, we'd be good. Every single time. And my guess is I'm not the only one 
who has experienced that. And, and I find myself thinking that, man, yeah, if we should have a little bit more, that'd, be, that'd be really be helpful. And Ecclesiastes is saying, no, don't you realize, like, the carrot's on the end of the stick and you're not reaching it. The further you go, the further away it gets. If you think there's ever going to be an amount, amount of money you can make where you say, yes, I am wholly content in this amount of money because I make so much, that it's never going to happen from making lots of money. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. And we, if we look at the life of Jesus, there's a powerful statement he makes in Luke chapter 12. He says this, he says, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, because life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. And that's a remarkable statement to me for two reasons. Number one, why does he say, watch out against all forms of greed? He doesn't say, Watch out against being greedy because God doesn't want you to be greedy because he's going to be angry with you if you're greedy. You'll be a bad Christian if you're greedy. He he doesn't say, don't be greedy because you'll be a bad person and you don't want to be a bad person, so don't be greedy. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. He says, why? Why why should you not be greedy? He said, because life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Why shouldn't you be greedy? It's not going to satisfy you. In Ecclesiastes, put it in the language of Ecclesiastes, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. So, so this isn't even a Christian thing. This is an everybody thing. If you make your life about pursuing money, you won't be satisfied. It just flat out doesn't work. And Jesus, who, who wants our joy, who's more interested in our joy than we are, says, no, no, no. If you walk down this path, it's not going to lead you anywhere good. It's fool's gold. But then the second thing, the second reason it's interesting is, is, is I think, even more powerful. Because listen, why does he say, watch out against all forms of greed? He doesn't say, for example, watch out against all forms of adultery. He doesn't say, watch out against all forms of lying or watch out against all forms of murder, all things that the Bible, to put it lightly, discourages. Why greed? Why greed? Because here's the deal. Anybody who's committing adultery knows they're committing adultery. Nobody has ever said, oh my gosh, yesterday... I think I committed adultery. I had no idea at the time. No one ever says that. Or if you are knowingly lying to somebody else, then by definition, you know that you are lying to them. Right? Or no one ever certainly, no one ever physically attacks somebody and is like, I have no idea what's happening here. No, I'm, 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 I'm punching you in the face. That's what's happening, right? You're aware of what's going on. But here's the deal. Greed is not like that. Greed is sneaky. And because greed is sneaky, good news, none of us are greedy, but we all know someone who is. <laughs> right? See, 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 we're just careful. We're not greedy, we're careful, but here's the thing. If I said to all of you right now, okay, everybody close your eyes, nobody's looking, I'm not even going to look, uh, and I'm just going to name off some, some issues, some challenges, some sin stuff, whatever, and if you struggle with these things, I want you to raise your hand, and by the way, you've all been equipped with special electrodes that will uh, zap you if you lie, so you've got to tell the truth. And if I said, okay, how many of you struggle with lust, how many of you struggle with envy, how many of you struggle with this and that, you know, we'd all, myself included, we'd raise our hands at some different things, but here's the thing, if I asked you how many of you struggle with greed, my guess is none of us would raise our hands. And we wouldn't be lying because we don't think we're greedy. We wouldn't be lying because we don't think we're greedy because greed is sneaky. But the fact of the matter is, for a lot of us, we are. The truth is, for many of us, we'd never admit this, but at the end of the day, we just love money. 
We just love it. And it's not a financial issue. Understand this. It's not a financial issue. It's a heart issue. Consider for the moment the amazing lengths that you and I will go to to upgrade our own lifestyle. We'll trade in. We'll go into debt. We'll get on a payment plan. We'll second mortgage, line of credit, move some things around, adjust some things so we can have the newest and biggest and best and we can upgrade our lifestyle. But then when it comes to give or someone comes to us with a need, or there's a situation where somebody's having a hard time and they could use some some financial assistance, what do we say? Oh, I don't have the cash for that. Well, that didn't stop you a second ago when it was about upgrading your own lifestyle. We say, we say I don't have the cash for that, but what do we say? We say, my heart goes out to you, but I don't have any money. But my heart, try paying your bills with my heart. That will help. What is that? It's greed. And it's the worst kind of greed because we're being spiritual about our greed now, right? It's greed. And Ecclesiastes says you can keep walking down that path as long as you want and you'll find that it's fool's gold. You'll find it's going to make you miserable. It's a path to nowhere. And what's so devastating about greed is that you and I will sacrifice true wealth in the pursuit of temporary things. We sacrifice relationships that are built oftentimes in in situations where there's opportunities for generosity. We'll sacrifice appropriate work-life balance. We'll sacrifice family. We'll sacrifice a healthy relationship with God. For what? For the pursuit of temporary wealth, dollars, and stuff. And for all of us, we've got to understand, greed is sneaky. It's so sneaky, and it tempts us to believe that ultimate contentment can be found in just a little bit more. And that's just not true. It's fool's gold. The passage goes on to point out some of the problems that come with loving money. Verse 11, when goods increase, they increase who eat them, but what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? In other words, it's saying, if you get lots of money, here's one of the problems with that. Lots of people are going to come to you and want their piece of the pie. I was watching SportsCenter recently, and one of the commentators was talking about an NBA player who up to this point in his career, I mean, they all make lots of money, but up to this point in his career has made a pretty modest salary by NBA standards. But he's had a great year, and he's about to sign a contract for just tons and tons of money. And one of the commentators said something I thought was so funny. He himself was a former player, and he's made lots of money in his life. He said, you about to have a whole bunch of new cousins, son. <laughs> right? Because when there's more... When, when you've got more, people, people come to you, they want a piece of it. Verse 12, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. What, what does that mean? Someone who gets up, goes out, works a job, works an honest day's work, and comes home, whether they're, regardless of the tax bracket they're in, that person is going to be able to sleep soundly, knowing I've done my job, I've worked hard, I've done right, I've, okay, I'm going to go back to work tomorrow and... And that's that. What I have, I have. I can be thankful for it. But the person who is obsessively pursuing wealth, the person who is always wanting more and more and more, they're going to be kept up in this idea of full stomach. It it, it means literally indigestion. (laughs) They're going to be up with just their stomach churning because they're stressed out about money. Are you kept up at night because you're stressed out about money? If I may be so bold, I want to suggest that might be a heart issue more than a financial issue. Verse 13, there is a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Literally, it's a sickening evil. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. He says, you want to know something I've seen that just makes me sick? Is I've seen people devote their entire lives to the accumulation of wealth, thinking that that's going to be the answer for them. 
and then they just lose it. It's gone. The market turns, they have a bad business deal, whatever, and it's all gone. Now, is he saying it's wrong to have a savings account or a retirement account or anything like that? No. But he's saying, be careful that you're not relying on your money for ultimate security. What would you do if you lost your money? If the answer is you'd be devastated, then that's a problem. That's way too much power to give something that is temporary and fickle. It goes on, and he is the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand, and he has, he has come from his mother's womb, and he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? It's an incredibly tragic story. He said there's someone who's neglected their family. They've neglected relationships. They've neglected healthy rhythms of work and, work and rest. And they've said, you know, I'm going to make lots of money. And then at the end of my life, I'm going to have all this money to give to my family members, and they're going to know how much I love them. And then it's gone. And he has nothing. And he's left with absolutely nothing. He's sacrificed his whole life for something temporary, and it's left to him. And he's left answering that tragic, tragic question, what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? What gain is there to him who has worked all his life for something that is here today, gone tomorrow? Nothing. And then it gets worse. Verse 17, it gets worse. And then in verse 18, it gets better. Just so you know, the story has a happy ending. Verse 17, it says, Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. In the ancient world, much like today, eating together was a sign of celebration and, and socialization and happiness and relationship. But it says he eats alone. And this darkness is meant not to signify not just the absence of light, but actual death. He's basically dead. He may as well be dead. He's given his life to something that cannot satisfy him. And he's left with nothing. And, and what a timely reminder that is for today, that true wealth is not measured in dollars. And see, one of the keys to having a healthy relationship with your money, regardless of what tax bracket you are in, is understanding what it can do for you. Can, can it meet your basic needs? Yes. Can, can it be used for experiences, like, like going to a play, or going to the movies, or a sporting event, or a concert, or going out to eat, doing fun things to enjoy? Yes, and that is a good and right thing to do, to be able to celebrate those things and thank God for them. Can it, can it be used to travel and, and have new experiences? Yes, and again, that's something to thank God for. Can it be used to fund ministry and help those who are in need? Yes, and that's a good and right thing to do. But can it give you a secure identity? No. Can, can it give you the peace of God that surpasses understanding? No. Can it give you eternal or even earthly security? No. It can't. If you enjoy your money, whatever God has given you, that's, that's wonderful and you should do that. But if you look to your money to give you security, you'll always be left wanting more. It's a fine thing to enjoy the things that money can buy. Just don't sacrifice the things money can't buy to get them. It's not worth it. I love what Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says, as for the rich in this present age, which, by the way, that's us. I realize we're a socioeconomically diverse crowd, but if you're in this room on a glo by a global standard, you're, you're rich. We are all 
rich. He says, the rich in this present age charge them not to be haughty, there's our word again, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves and as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. He says, make sure the people with money know what to do with it. Make sure they know what it can do and what it can't. And make sure they know the way to use their money in such a way that it will bring about their joy and not their stress. And it will bring about God's glory. So what do we do with all this? Here's here's the good part as we close out the passage. Behold, verse 18, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. What's the antidote to greed? What's the secret to a happy life? The writer of Ecclesiastes says it's to enjoy God's daily gifts, whatever they are. It is to adopt a perspective of thankfulness for what you have, for food, for drink, for work, for things like that, and to remember that it's all a gift from him. My wife likes to tease me and say that I am easily amused and easily impressed. And that is absolutely true. I told her I was going to tell you all that, and she just nodded. Yep, that's right. <laughs> easily amused and easily impressed. So, so what will happen is at least a few times per week in my home, as I see a new piece of technology, or I find out about some new research or things that are happening in the world, or different breakthroughs, or even if I just discover a dumb little app on my phone. This is my line. I say it all the time. Wow, what a time to be alive. Or we just, a new member of our staff who's a graphic designer was showing me some stuff he can do with some of these design programs. And I said it to him, wow, what a time to be alive. That's amazing. And he's just looking at me like, yeah, this technology is like five years old. (laughs) But, but, But that's just sort of my perspective on things. And it sounds very simple. But like, there's part of me that's like, man, you mean to tell me I can just tap on this little screen thing I have in my hand and it'll send a message to somebody on the other side of the room or on the other side of town? Or on the other side of the country, the other side of the world? That's amazing! And you're like, dude, it is a text message. Like, that is not that big a deal. But I think it is a big deal. It's amazing that we can do those sorts of things, those little things. So I express this sort of thing to my wife all the time, and she just shakes her head and quietly regrets the fact that she's married to an overgrown child. But you can pray for her. Um, But but here's... Here's the serious point in all of this. And this is something, I, I've got a long way to go in this. I don't mean to say I've arrived, and a lot of you are probably far, far, far beyond me in this area. But it's something I've started to tap into that's made an unbelievable difference in my life. See, when you believe you're entitled to nothing, everything is a blessing. When you believe you're entitled to nothing, everything is a blessing. 
And I've tried to keep this as my posture in all sorts of different areas of life. I love my job and I'm so blessed to get to do what I do. But just like at your job, there are days when it's hard. There are decisions that are difficult. There are times when it's stressful. And in those moments, I just try to just try to just pause and pull back for a second and say, God, you have, you have appointed me to these tasks in this time. Thank you. You have provided me the opportunity to provide for my family. Thank you. You have given me the opportunity to serve your people, which, by the way, we all serve God's people in whatever we do. So thank you. Or, or when parenting is hard and I just don't know what to do, which happens about five times a day, I just, just to pause and say, God, for, for whatever reason, you have entrusted these two little lives to my care. Thank you. Or just the general perspective of, of God, you've, you've given me these minutes and these hours and these days and months and years. And I, I don't know how many of them I have left. That's really up to you. But thank you. It's all a gift. It's all a gift. And whatever, whatever my bank account says, whatever the health report says, whatever anything else says, whatever I have is a gift. I'm entitled to none of it. And yet God gives it to me. Whatever he gives me is enough. And I want to maintain a posture of thankfulness and contentment. Thankful for the good gifts that God gives. Because what I found what I've found is I have much more control over my perspective than my circumstances. I don't know if you've figured this out yet, but life just sort of happens, and we don't have a lot of control over some different things, but we have control over our perspective, maybe not our circumstances. But I've also found that my joy, my happiness, my contentment is dependent far more on my perspective than my circumstances. So I want my perspective to always be this. That there is a God in heaven. And despite my sin and your sin, despite our brokenness, despite all of the ways that I screw up, that God loved us with such depth that he put on flesh and became a person in the person of Jesus Christ. And that God died in my place for my sin to make me whole. That God who owes me nothing has given me everything. And for whatever reason, he continues to lavish blessings upon me, like, for example, the ability to convert oxygen to carbon dioxide. Dioxide. Big fan of that one. For whatever reason, he continues to bestow those blessings that I am entirely unworthy of upon me, and I want to maintain a posture of thankfulness for that. See, that's contentment, and I'm convinced that that's a heart issue, not a circumstance issue. And your heavenly Father who loves you and loves me wants you to have a heart that is full, a heart that is thankful, a heart that is content. Why? Because that's where you'll find life. Because listen, true wealth is not measured in dollars. True wealth is about contentment with the gifts that God gives. I love how one of the commentaries I read this week put it, and I'll close with this. It said this. It said, if we focus more on the gifts than on the giver, we're guilty of idolatry. If we, can, if we accept his gifts, but we complain, we're guilty of ingratitude. If we hoard his gifts and will not share them with others, we're guilty of indulgence. But if we yield to his will and use what he gives for his glory, we can enjoy life and be satisfied. That's a rich life. That's a life of true 
well. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your word that it is inspired by you and it is profitable for us. Thank you, God, that in a a world that is just crazy with more and more and more and, and riches and wealth and just so many of us are just killing ourselves trying to get more. Thank you that you show us a better way. Thank you that you show us that, that true wealth is not about dollars, it's about contentment. It's about thankfulness for the blessings that you give. So, so God, I, I, I get stressed out just like anyone else. I have my moments just like anyone else. And I, I pray for all of us that as life is challenging, as we embrace the challenges that are before us, that we would do so with a perspective of thankfulness. We would do so with a perspective of gratitude for the good gifts that you give. And God, as we live this life of gratitude, we pray that that others might see you in us, that you would be glorified and your kingdom would expand. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a wonderful-